Hello, it's Tuesday, the 13th of December, and welcome to Crow 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Ho. Some 10 centimeters of snow is expected in the central inland regions overnight, with a bitter cold snap set to hit the nation by Wednesday morning. We'll have the latest updates in a news briefing shortly. 31 nations issued a statement criticizing North Korea's human rights record last week and called on the UN Security Council to have open discussions on the matter. We'll discuss such calls for our in depth today. And then coming up for Touch Basin's Hull, we'll meet the Israeli ambassador to Korea to discuss 60 years of diplomatic ties between the two countries. Let's begin Korea 24. South Korea saw some heavy snowfall in central inland regions Tuesday and a bitter cold wave is expected on Wednesday morning. Air quality is also a concern as yellow dust began to blanket the country Monday night. Uh, for more on this story and our other headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio senior journalist Daniel Chair once again. Daniel, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, it's good to be with you, Jango. Uh, we do love a white Christmas, and uh, kids would usually watch the snow cover everything and feel their hearts racing, but that is not the case, especially when we have to worry about the impact of piled-up snow along with yellow dust during rush hour. So, Daniel, can you update us on the latest? Yeah, partly grown-up concerns, and we are, of course, concerned about what to do when we need to punch in or punch out of work. Mm. The government mobilized its emergency response system, and this follows forecasts of heavy snowfalls in many parts of the nation, including the Seoul metropolitan area. The Ministry of the Interior and Safety set the lowest of the three-stage emergency response posture by the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters is in place. The anti-disaster agency's crisis alert also raised from attention to caution there. Earlier at 2 p.m., heavy snow advisories were issued for southern Gyeonggi province, Chungcheong provinces, north Chala province, and southern inland areas of Gangwon province. According to the KMA, up to over or around 10 centimeters of snow will blanket southern Gyeonggi areas, southern inland areas in Gangwon and northern parts of the Chungcheong. And the ministry also heightened cold wave crisis alert from attention to caution on Tuesday. The weather agency issued cold spell advisories for the whole country except for Jeju at 10 a.m. A deep freeze is expected to grip the nation on Wednesday, so be prepared for that bundle up. Morning temperatures will be dipping to as low as minus 15 degrees Celsius in some parts, including the capital. There are air quality concerns as well due to yellow dust, as you mentioned earlier, spilling over to the peninsula from late Monday. Almost all regions in the nation except for South Gyeongsang province came under a yellow dust crisis alert. Attention or caution on Tuesday. Yes, we hope our listeners uh, get home safe tonight uh, amid this snow and the cold weather. Let's turn to some other headlines now. President Yoon sung yeol declared an overhaul of the previous administration's so-called Moon Jae-in care policy that expanded state-run health insurance coverage. And this came at a cabinet meeting on Tuesday. Can you tell us more? Right. Uh, Yoon emphasized over 20 trillion won was spent to strengthen the coverage, but the previous government neglected the abuse and freeloading of the system, apparently, uh, passing the burden on to most of the public with what President Yoon called populist policies. Uh, the president stressed the health insurance reforms are not a choice but a necessity and called to swiftly normalize the system. Uh, Yoon said eligibility for insurance benefits should be tightened and measures must be devised to prevent funds being wasted. Also important is supporting vulnerable groups more effectively. 
He pledged to guarantee coverage for serious illnesses while enhancing the system's sustainability. So a lot of work to be done if you want to overall change something that's been set several years ago. Mm. Meanwhile, President Yoon Sang-yeol pledged to continue pushing for labor reforms as well, with the goal of mainly protecting the socially vulnerable. And the move is based on recommendations put forth by a panel of civilian experts. Yeah, at Tuesday's cabinet meeting, Yoon said revamping the existing dual system of regular and irregular workforce is a task that can no longer be delayed. He highlighted it's closely linked to the competitiveness of local industries and the employment of future generations. The remarks come a day after the Future Labor Market Research Association announced reform recommendations. This includes enhanced flexibility of the 52-hour work week and a transition to a performance-based wage system. On the recent unionized trucker strike, Yun expressed regret that the collective action ended after two rounds of the government's return-to-work order. He pledged to hold those found responsible for illicit acts accountable. The president called on law enforcement agencies to sternly respond to any illegal and violent actions and also promised to eradicate systematic wrongful acts in the field. As there are many adversely impacted by the strike, the South Korean leader vowed to mobilize all possible means to help them out as well. Moving on, the former presidential chief of staff, Noh Young-min, is being questioned by the prosecution. Uh, this is over the previous government's handling of the 2020 shooting death of a South Korean fisheries official by North Korean soldiers. So what's the latest on the uh, on this investigation? Well, the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office summoned Noh for questioning on Tuesday, and this is in relation to his time as former President Moon Jae-in's chief of staff. He did serve in that post for nearly two years from January 2019, and during the time he was considered a key part of the top office. Noh was present at the ministerial meeting convened the day after the Fisheries official Lee Dae-jun was killed. Another meeting on the incident the following day, and both times he briefed the president with former National Security Advisor Seo Hoon. Prosecutors want to find out the details of the meeting. The focus will be on whether any attempts were made to cover up the incident or make it look like he attempted to defect. Noe is being questioned some two months after he was interrogated by the prosecution on his alleged involvement in the forced repatriation of two North Korean fishermen back in 2019. He also faces suspicion of exerting pressure to help a former member of the Democratic Party get a job. In other North Korea-related news, the top nuclear envoys of South Korea, the U.S. and Japan held talks in Jakarta on Tuesday. During the session, the trio discussed response measures to North Korea's escalating provocations and recent missile threats. So can you fill us in on the details? But this is a topic that can be discussed for as long as time uh, exists with us, unfortunately. The session was held at the U.S. Embassy in Indonesia. The last such trilateral meeting took place three months ago in early September. Uh, Seoul's chief negotiator said the international community will never recognize North Korea as a nuclear power and called on the regime to face reality. There were more uh, colorful words used, but this, these are the words that we would choose for now. Uh, Kim Gun highlighted that for three decades, the international community stood firm in the common goal of denuclearizing the North, and this is something that will never change. He criticized the communist state for squandering resources in nuclear and missile development, even amid the pandemic and natural disasters, something that ultimately weakened Pyongyang's national security and ruined its economy and drove it deeper, even deeper, into diplomatic isolation. He stressed the need for dialogue as Seoul is sincere about holding talks and that the door remains open. As for America's new convoy, he asked countries around the world to join in efforts urging the North to abide by the UNSC resolutions. Sang Kim underlined the importance of a unified global voice to convince and 
talk some sense into the regime. The U.S.-Japanese counterpart said if the North carries out a nuclear test, the three sides will respond by seeking stronger security cooperation. Takehiro Funakoshi said his government will consider all options, including raising the defense budget to 2% of GDP and sharpening counteroffensive capabilities, that is. He also vowed to deepen cooperation with like-minded countries and review imposing UN sanctions on North Korea. Meanwhile, the South Korean ambassador for North Korean human rights, Yi Xinhua, visited Japan from Saturday to Monday and discussed the issue of Japanese abductees in the North. So can you tell us more about what was discussed? So according to the foreign ministry, he held talks with Japan's chief cabinet secretary Matsuno Hirokatsu on Monday. She explained Seoul's policy on North Korean human rights issues and cooperation on ways to improve the regime's human rights situation. That was also discussed. And the visiting official expressed support for Tokyo's efforts in seeking a resolution of the abductee issues. She expressed hopes for joint endeavors to resolve a broader range of human rights concerns that include POW and detainees. The ambassador held talks with Japanese civic groups as well and met with the families of the kidnapped victims and shared their grief. And on Saturday, he attended a related symposium hosted by the Tokyo government. There she met UN Special Rapporteur for North Korean Human Rights, Elizabeth Salmon. She was in attendance as one of the panelists, and Salmon invited E to an event on North Korean women's rights set to be held next year. And finally, the hit film, Decision to Leave by Pak Chanuk, has been receiving rave reviews in and out of Korea. And now the maestro's latest work is nominated for a Golden Globe as well. Can you tell us more? Yeah, it is a film that's, uh, that requires multiple viewing, apparently, to fans of the film. Mm. Uh, as the best non-English language film at the 80th Golden Globe Awards, that's the nomination that Decision to Leave got. Mm. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association announced the nominees. Uh, if best non-English language film sounds like an unfamiliar category, that's because it was formerly known as best foreign language picture. It's an honor to be nominated, but of course, taking home the prize would be better. Mm. Uh, however, Decision to Leave has some tough competition stacked up. Uh, four very strong contenders, All Quiet on the Western Front, Argentina 1985, Close, and my personal favorite, I think this might be the one that gives the toughest competition for the Korean movie, RRR, an mm. Indian action movie based on some historical facts. Uh, Bong Juno's Parasite made history by winning the award in 2020. The streak was kept alive with Minari by Korean-American director E. Isaac Chung winning the prize the following year. This January, actor Woo Young-soo won Best Performance by a Supporting Actor in a TV Series at the 79th Golden Globes for his role in the super popular TV series or Netflix show Squid Game. Of course. Uh, we'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. I'll talk to you again. Thirty-one countries, including South Korea, the U.S. and Japan, have openly criticized North Korea's human rights violations. They issued a joint statement in New York last Friday following a closed-door U.N. Security Council meeting on the North's human rights issue. The ambassadors of the 31 nations also said it's time for the Security Council to address the issue publicly. And the statement came after dozens of international human rights organizations and defenders called for UNSC open discussions. The Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, or 
HRNK was one of those organizations. And we have joining us on the line now its executive director, Greg Scalacciu, to take a closer look at these issues. Mr. Scalacciu, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very good afternoon to you. Yes, let's start with that joint statement, which was delivered by a U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, in York last week. Can you first tell us more about it for our listeners and also what you thought of it? Well, it is important. We know that uh, human rights and multilateralism are two of the pillars of uh, President Biden's uh, foreign uh, policy. Uh, it is encouraging to see that this is applied North Korean human rights. Uh, it was encouraging and heartening to see the joint statement delivered um, by Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. Um, we, uh, North Korean human rights organizations, also want to see much more being done at the UN Security Council. Um, after the February 2014 report of the UN Commission of Inquiry, the UNCOI, in 2014, 15, 16, and 17, Four times in a row, uh, the North Korean human rights issue was included in the agenda of the UN Security Council. It takes nine out of 15 votes of permanent and non-permanent members. No veto applies, so this is a procedural matter. Well, if it becomes a substantive matter, then it becomes subject to the veto of one of the, the Security Council members. Could be Russia, could be China, but by all means, this statement is encouraging, but we do not want to see North Korean human rights again addressed in a closed-door meeting as AOB, any other business. We're talking about crimes against humanity. We're talking about egregious human rights violations. This cannot be AOB. This cannot be any other business. Right. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, some of these issues? Can you remind us why this is such an important issue and sum up for us uh, the human rights situation in North Korea? According to the February 2014 report of the UN Commission of Inquiry, many of the egregious human rights violations being perpetrated in North Korea amount to crimes against humanity, especially at North Korea's detention facilities. The North Korean regime is running a vast system of unlawful imprisonment with up to 200,000 men, women and children held at Kualiso political prison camps. Men, women and children because the regime applies a system of guilt by association and thus up to three generations of the same family pursuant to the system of Yonja Jao imprisoned. There are many other types of detention facilities, Kyohoso re-education uh, through labor um, camps and so on and so forth. So there are the, the camps, this vast system of unlawful imprisonment. Um, egregious human rights violations are perpetrated there. Let us remember North Korea continues to perpetuate its Songbun system of uh, social classification or social discrimination based on one's perceived loyalty to the regime and on the relatives and ancestors perceived loyalty to the regime. The regime is spending humongous amounts of money on the nuclear and missile program while taking away from the nutrition, food, health, and in general, the humanitarian security of all North Koreans. Up to 30% of North Korean children continue to be malnourished. And let us not forget the overwhelming degree of coercion, control, surveillance, and punishment 
exercised by 270,000 agents of the three North Korean internal security agencies. Let us not forget that citizens are forced to report on others, on family members and neighbors. It's an extraordinarily oppressive environment, especially under COVID. Under the pretext of COVID, North Korea cracked down on information coming in from the outside world and on travel. Of course, um, there was punishment always for attempting to watch foreign movies, for example, um, especially if one gets caught watching South Korean material. They can get punished with up to 15 years uh, at a Kyoha Seoul Education for Labor Camp. If you get caught selling K-pop, K-drama, K-movies, uh, the punishment may as well be death by firing squad. Yes, the oppression is severe and chilling, to say the least. Uh, in addition to the joint statement, uh, there was a prior to the closed-door meeting, uh, international human rights organizations uh, such as yourself and defenders sent a joint open letter to the UN Security Council member states urging uh, the Security Council to resume open discussions, uh, as you said, on the reclusive state safety and rights situation uh, as soon as possible. Can you uh, tell us uh, more about this open letter as well? I believe it was signed by 45 human rights organizations and uh, several renowned figures, including Thomas Ohea Quintana, who formerly served as uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in North Korea. Very true, and we were part of this effort. So the points that we made in this letter, together with our colleagues, um, were the following. Um, it has been um, almost 10 years since the establishment, by consensus, uh, of all 47 member states of the Human Rights Council of the UN Commission of Inquiry, uh, 10 years after the establishment of the Commission of Inquiry, these egregious human rights violations continue to be perpetrated. Placing the issue on the agenda of the Security Council is extraordinarily important in terms of gaining the attention of the North Korean regime, of the DPRK. Of course, if you say Security Council, remember one of the recommendations of the UNCOI was that the UN Security Council submit the North Korean case to the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Now, every time you bring up human rights, and especially, especially accountability, this absolutely gets the attention of the DPRK, of the North Korean regime. So not only is a symbolic gesture in terms of gaining attention and focusing attention on human rights, uh, placing the North Korean human rights issue on the agenda of the UN Security Council is extraordinarily important, while efforts continue at the General Assembly, at the Human Rights Council, and we have seen very solid resolutions being passed this year. Mm. Why is it so important that the United Nations Security Council resume open discussions? Uh, uh, what's, why are closed-door sessions not enough? Um, there is uh, certainly a technical aspect to this, and there is also a public information aspect to this. The, the former um, chief um, investigator of the UN Commission of Inquiry, Justice Michael Kirby of Australia, for example, made it a point to have hearings open to the public. Uh, these are human rights violations. These are internationally accepted fundamental human rights a debate of human rights cannot be a closed-door debate. This is a universal value embedded in the very charter of the United Nations and, of course, in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we celebrated just three days ago on Human Rights Day on the 10th of December. Mm. 
I understand that the Security Council held open discussions on North Korea's human rights situation uh, before, from 2014 to 2017, uh, but stopped doing so since then. Why is that the case? Um, of course, I, I, I run an NGO. I, I, I'm not related to the U.S. government, but I believe that uh, during the days of summit diplomacy, uh, this was perhaps to avoid provoking the North Korean regime, since uh, there was a series of summit meetings between former President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. Um, we haven't had one since the Trump administration. Once again, the Biden administration is focused on human rights as a pillar of our foreign policy. Of course, we have been dealing with a lot of very serious foreign crises from the Middle East to Ukraine. So I think it's also an issue of prioritizing these issues. But the North Korean human rights issue continues to be very current. Uh, these are violations that are happening today, the 13th of December 2022, not too far from where we are in Seoul, South Korea right now. Mm. OK, and ultimately, what do you think all this needs to serve to do? And you also talked about uh, there need to be much more effort from the international community to tackle this issue. What more efforts uh, do you think need to uh, be made to improve the human rights situation in North Korea? Well, there is a group of like-minded UN member states that have pushed for significant action at the United Nations for many years. The United States, the Republic of Korea, Japan, the European Union, and others, Australia, New Zealand. We need to resuscitate this collaboration. Um, in each country, there are priorities that need to be addressed immediately. In South Korea, the South Korean government needs to find a way to fund and operate the North Korean Human Rights Foundation it is stuck because of political disagreement. This should not be a politicized issue. In the United States, we haven't had uh, a special envoy for North Korean human rights since January 2017 when Ambassador King stepped down. We need to appoint a special envoy, and this way we will find ways to fortify, to strengthen this collaboration and stand together for the human rights and freedom of the people of North Korea. Right. I guess there's also responsibility for governments and organizations to keep highlighting uh, the atrocities of the regime so that they're not forgotten, that there's constant pressure on the regime to try and bring about change one day faster. Well, uh, Mr. Scalatiu, we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us on this topic today. Uh, we'll have to end it there. We've been speaking to Greg Scalatiu from the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. The pleasure is all mine. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 0.62 points, or 0.03% on Tuesday, closing the day at 2,372.40. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 0.06 points, or 0.01%, to close at 715.16. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 1.21 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,306.1. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment, rounding up some other news headlines that have been trending online in Korea today. And it's the turn of Diane Yu to bring us those stories. 
Dan, hello. It's uh, good to see you. Hello, Dango. It's good to see you. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? First, we'll take a look at how the Seoul city government will deal with possible delays stemming from protests by a disabled advocacy group. Next, we'll also cover how much allowance parents are going to be given by the government to help the country's low birth rate. And we'll cap off with a heartwarming story of a firefighter couple who stopped a neighbor's fire. Okay, so we start with a story related to the disability advocacy group subway protests. Can you tell us more? Mm -hmm. The Seoul Metropolitan Government has decided to allow trains to pass through subway stations without stopping if there is a serious delay during peak times due to protests from the Solidarity Against Disability Discrimination. According to the city government, the decision was made on Monday afternoon after holding a meeting with the Seoul Metro and the police. One city government official said from the morning of the 13th, the city government decided to apply the policy of passing through Samgakji station without stopping. This station is on lines 4 and 6. For those who are not familiar with the protests, the Solidarity Against Disability Discrimination, or SADD in short, has been staging subway protests for about a year since early December 2021. The group has been demanding better measures to improve their rights to free movement and an enlarged budget for disability rights. Yes, the advocacy group has been protesting for quite some time now, and it's been a hot political topic Mm -hmm. as well earlier this year, which we discussed on the show. Uh, How did it react to the city's decision? Well, the SADD members did not welcome the city's decision. The group said that the decision retreats from democracy by ignoring the rights of the disabled. However, the city government said that there is an institutional ground behind its announcement as its internal regulations stipulate that if there is a concern about the safety of passengers due to unrest or unusual situations, the stations can be passed through without stopping. Yes, and public safety has become a very sensitive topic in light of the Itaewon crowd crush tragedy as well. Uh, So when could this new policy uh, next come into effect? The advocacy group has been carrying out protests this week, right? Right. It seems like Solite subway commutes to work, especially passing through Samgakji station, will be crowded until December 15th, this Thursday. The advocacy group has announced that it plans to stage such demonstrations at 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. from Monday to Thursday at Samgakji subway station. So be sure to check the subway schedules and announcements if you're planning to get on or off at the station at around those times. Right. For those who need to use Samgakji station, this right. Could be quite a headache mm-hmm. uh, during the rush hour commute. So mm-hmm. for anyone affected, it looks like they might need to make other arrangements or at least uh, leave more time. Right. Let's uh, move on to our second story of the day. What do you have for us next? South Korea's Ministry of Health and Welfare announced a mid to long term child care plan today to strengthen support for child care at home and at daycare centers to address the low birth rate problems in the nation. Starting next year, the government will begin paying a parenting allowance of 350000 to 700000 a month to households with an infant between 0 and 12 months old. That's around 270 and 540 U.S. dollars, respectively. However, if the recipient uses a daycare center, the remaining amount after deducting the child care fee will be given. Okay, and that's not all, right? Along with the mandatory subsidy, there are 
other support policies being introduced, I believe. Right. Considering the demand for the regular use of part-time childcare services, the government plans to introduce a new model that integrates with existing daycare centers and expands the center's operating hours. The number of households that are eligible to apply for childcare services will also be increased. The government has also decided to review the expansion of the number of teachers per infant and toddler in daycare centers. And in addition, acquiring qualifications to become nursery teachers will be more difficult. The teacher fostering system will be reformed so that only graduates of departments from educational institutions recognized by the government can work as a teacher. Okay, so how can the parents apply for the parenting allowance and other benefits, or is it automatically given? So parents can apply for the allowance online through the Bokjiro or Government 24 portals or at their local community centers. They are entitled to the benefits even if they overlap with the monthly child allowance of 100,001 or 76 US dollars for families with children under eight years of age. It will also not affect any of the other forms of local government support that encourage married couples to have children. Yes, there remain question marks about whether these sorts of benefits really do encourage people to Mm -hmm. have children. But I suppose for those that do, uh, every little helps. Right. Moving on to our final story of the day, and we have news of a heroic deed indeed, I understand. Yes, indeed. Even with a cold wave that's freezing the water and making the air crisp, this is a story that will melt your heart. (laughs) According to the fire authorities on the 11th, an off-duty firefighter couple in their 30s witnessed a fire breakout in one of their neighborhood's apartments and was able to prevent a crisis that could have turned into a major incident. It was late at night, a little after midnight, so the couple's act saved many families living in that apartment complex. Okay, so walk us through what happened exactly. At 20 minutes past midnight on the 6th, Lee Sang-yoon, a member of the rescue team at the Songpa Fire Station in Seoul, noticed faint flames and smoke rising from a unit while taking out his recycling at his apartment complex in Hanam, Gyeonggi Province. Sensing a fire, he called 119, requested an evacuation announcement from the management office, and ran up to check himself. But he had a hard time finding exactly which unit was on fire. So he first knocked on a residence on the 6th. 16th floor, but the owner said, it's not here. Right, so not only did he call it in, he went to check on the situation himself. Mm-hmm. So how was he able to find the correct floor in the end then? That's when his wife, Jung Sori, who was at home, helped. She received a call from her husband and went outside to reconfirm the location of the flames. Jung also works at the Songpa Fire Station. With the help of his wife, he evacuated the households on the 17th and 18th floors, but later found out that the fire did, in fact, start from the 16th floor. So he used a fire hydrant to prevent the flames from spreading until the Hanan Fire Department arrived. And thanks to the strong work ethic of the firefighter couple, an incident that could have been a nightmare before Christmas was prevented. Well, it's certainly a relief that no one was hurt in the incident, thanks to the quick response and teamwork of Mm -hmm. this heroic couple. Uh, We'll leave it there for Career Training Today. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. This year marks the 60th anniversary of bilateral relations between Korea and Israel. And coinciding with the anniversary, this year was the year that the Israel-Korea Free Trade Agreement went into effect. 
It was a deal which was reached in 2019 after six rounds of negotiations and expected to boost trade in various areas such as semiconductors, cars, cosmetics and more. For this week's Touch Basins Hall, we have in the studio with us the Israeli ambassador to South Korea, Akiva Tor, uh, to tell us more about the relationship between the two countries as well as his personal experiences in Korea. Ambassador, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, let's start with your personal story a bit. I understand that uh, you've had a distinguished diplomatic career for over 25 years and you've been serving as ambassador in Seoul for two years now, since late 2020. So, over the two years now, how has it been? How have you found South Korea? I found it a very exciting and invigorating experience. Um, the Israeli embassy has to work hard here because we're a small embassy with large ambitions. So we we try to have an outsized role. And the reason we're doing that is because I believe there's huge potential in the Israel-Korea relationship. Mm. It's a relationship which needs to go further than where it is right now. So I think that's a nice phrase, small embassy but large ambitions. Uh, so it sounds like you've been very busy. Uh, outside of the office life, though, how have you found living in Korea? I believe uh, you have been enjoying the mountains of Korea and sharing them on the MC's YouTube channel as well. I like all aspects of Korea. I, uh, the mountains, I like. I've attended the theater here. He, uh, Israeli plays in, in Korean language, pansori music, all forms of progressive pansori really, really do it for me. Uh, I read Korean novels. I I find this country very compelling. It sounds like you're really getting to know Korea, really diving into the culture and enjoying everything you can here. Well, every time I talk to my staff, though, my Korean staff, I realize how much I, I don't know. <laughs> and I realize, I also realize that even on my last day as ambassador in Korea, which will probably be in around two years from now, I'll probably learn something on my last day that I that I that 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 I did not know, but um, because it's multi-layered here, and it's complex and it's psychological, and the history is very rich and the culture is amazing, and um, a lot of it reminds me of Israel, and a lot of it doesn't remind me of Israel. But it's uh, it's a cool place to be. When you say it reminds you of Israel, what do you mean by that? Well, this is a very ancient country, a very ancient culture but in a new political form. Hmm. As the Republic of Korea came into being, well, it's a big argument, 1945, 1948, but let's say for argument's sake, 1948. In democracy, uh, Korea became democratized in the late 80s. Israel also is a very ancient people, um, but also we're in a new political form. Hmm. We were in diaspora for almost 2,000 years, and the Israeli state was established on May 14th, 1948, same year as Korea. And uh, we're also two countries which had a pretty miserable 20th century. Mm. And we're also countries with pretty much zero natural resources, although we recently discovered natural gas in the Mediterranean. I hope it doesn't wreck everything. Uh, and uh, we went from really uh, economic privation and severe economic and uh, difficult security situation in the first decade of our birth to become very prosperous democracies. So all these are things which are rare 
uh, but are common to Israel and Korea. That's what I mean by that we're similar. Wow. So clearly you have a deep appreciation of uh, the country here in South Korea and uh, you are... You, it seems you appreciate both sides very well, and it's it's a it's wonderful to have you here, uh, someone like you here, I think. Uh, and you are at the helm of the embassy during quite a milestone year as well, sixty years of the relationship between South Korea and Israel. How would you describe that time and that relationship that's developed? Well, unfortunately, unfortunately for us, in 1962, Korea initiated diplomatic relations with many countries. Mm. So if we want our 60 years to stick out, we really had to do something. And we tried to. We tried to have uh, unique projects this year. We established an Israeli-Korea metaverse, which is actually probably the first embassy metaverse anywhere in the world, not only in Korea. It's certainly the first Israeli uh, diplomatic metaverse. And your viewers can access it from their phones without needing any Oculus or expensive equipment. Mm. Just download uh, Israel-Korea Metaverse. It's a, it's both in Google Play and also uh, on iPhone Store. Sounds interesting. So and what do we find in the Metaverse? You go in there and you enter a digital building which looks like the Shrine of the Book, which is a signature building in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Mm which holds the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. Okay. But if you'll go in there, you'll discover a, um, a museum or a gallery uh, showing all kinds of archival materials from Israel-Korea relations, from important people meeting to a miracle that happened when Korea, when Israel by accident defeated Korea in baseball in the Asian Games. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, basically the story of our relationship. Mm. Then when you go up to the second floor, we have a meeting room where we can actually have activities. So it sounds like a fascinating project. Uh, I believe that's just one of many projects that you carried out this year for, uh, to mark the anniversary, right? We, well, luckily, you know, uh, China was not really functioning in the last year. So uh, we received from our foreign ministry the uh, public diplomacy budget that was supposed to go to our missions in China you had to spend the money somehow. Mm. So we were able to do a lot of things here in Korea. And we we participated in Busan Rock Festival. And in Jarasam, we were very heavily represented. And we did plays. And we had a very, very rich uh, cultural program here in Korea this year. And I believe there was also uh, a music video uh, that you wanted to mention today uh, between uh, a collaboration between uh, South Korean and uh, Israeli artists. It's uh, it's something, I think, which has never been done in the history of sound. It's called, on, on uh, YouTube, just Google Missing Here. That's the name of the song in mm. Hebrew. And we have a wonderful Pansori artist, Yulhi Kim, and a magnificent Gamango player, uh, Hayun Jung. They went to Israel for a couple of days, and they met with Esther Rada, who is an Ethiopian Israeli Jew who's also, she sings soul, with Daniel Zamir, who's a rock klezmer saxophonist. And we got these four people who are representing two cultures that never really made music together. They don't even really talk exactly in the same musical scales. <laughs> they came together in this... Um, musical environment in industrial Tel Aviv and they made something amazing.
something really amazing, a true fusion between Korean ancient and new and Israeli old and new sounds. And I, I loved it. Actually, my wife um, recorded the song uh, in syllables. So and your wife personally did this? Yes, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but the artist, um, Kim Yuli, she really studied. And, uh, and later on in the song, she sings the same, uh, same verse in Korean. Mm. And it was filmed, uh, I mean, they, they recorded it in a studio, but afterwards they filmed on the Dead Sea, on Masada, and also in Jerusalem. I think it was something very special. Indeed, even just from that quick little bit that we heard, it is a quite fascinating and a really interesting collaboration. Uh, once again, it's called Missing Here. It's on the Israel in Korea YouTube page. OK, let's uh, briefly also talk about the free trade agreement that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, it officially came into effect this month on December 1st. And I believe it's the first FTA that uh, Israel has made with a country in Asia. So can you tell us more about that? Also, Korea's first in the Middle East. Right, OK. Uh, it's a miracle, kind of. <laughs> so first on both sides. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, look, it, it, it's, uh, it's very important economically because it, will, it creates new tools and regulatory uh, mechanisms for us to boost investment and to make uh, Korean products more uh, competitive in Israel and Israeli products more competitive in Korea. It will probably boost trade by a few hundred million dollars in the first couple of years. I think, though, it also has a strong symbolic um, meaning. It's, it's basically saying, look, uh, sometimes countries talk about or ambassadors talk about synergy with the Korean economy. In the case of Israel and Korea, it's actually true <laughs> because Israel is an innovation powerhouse. Mm. We're a country of less than 10 million people. And yes, we have, we have the th third largest number of, uh, of high-tech companies on NASDAQ after U.S. and China, which is kind of crazy, mm. right? And Korea, a country of only 52 million, is this amazing design, high-tech production, and global marketer, creator of steel, cars, shipping, all of these products. If we take the Israeli innovation and the Korean uh, industrial genius, it takes us a far way. I think if we, for example, if you look at the autonomous vehicle, Korea wants to build the leading autonomous vehicle. I think that Korea also wants to build the leading UAM or urban air mobility vehicle. Mm. I think that this this product will be, if it, if it wants to be the leader in the world, then it'll be a combination of Korean production and design and engineering and Israeli disruptive code. Mm. These two things together will truly synergize. And I think that's what the FDA symbolizes, this promise, this possibility. Indeed. So there's a lot of uh, exciting areas uh, in the fourth industrial revolution, perhaps uh, we can call it, uh, where the two countries can really cooperate and collaborate. Uh, is that where you see the relationship? That's the heart of the development uh, of the next few years, do you think? Yes, it's very important. It's key. It's probably the major pillar, but not the only one. Hmm. Okay, I think, uh, 
look, we can't ignore the fact that we're two countries, two democracies with a very significant security dilemma. Mm. And I don't know, it's like kind of a joke by the creator of the universe, but uh, Korea is looking at a missile threat with a strong nuclear dimension, and Israel is looking at a missile threat with a possible nuclear dimension from Iran. Mm. I think that requires two countries to look at each other and see what what can we do to help defend our countries. Uh, the other level where I think that we need to, I think our, our relationships are good and friendly, but they're not intimate. And the strongest symbol of our lack of intimacy is that no Korean president has ever visited Israel in 60 years. And that's strange and anomalous. Mm. Two Israeli presidents, Shimon Peres and Ruven Rivlin, visited Korea. And um, I hope that we can rectify it. Well, it sounds like, Ambassador, uh, you have lots of big plans and ambitions, but there's definitely uh, room and area for the relationship to grow, it seems. And hopefully this FTUA will be uh, a foundation stone for that future uh, development and cooperation. Finally, let's quickly finish with your personal plans. What are your plans for the coming year? Uh, any other places you'd like to visit in Korea? Well, I surely have to climb Jirasan. There are about 40 Joseon tombs. And I'm not going to get to all of them, but I'm going to get to a <laughs> bunch of them because they're, they're amazing. Uh, yeah, if I could take, if I was able to take some serious time off work, then I would like to climb the whole Tabak Range. Wow. But I don't know how to do that exactly. Because <laughs> I, I mean, it'll, that would take a couple of weeks. So maybe I'd have to do it in parts. When I first got here, I had this sort of like dream of climbing, you know, the 100 famous Korean peaks. I might have to limit it to the highest peak in each province. But uh, you have a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country. And I love the way Korean people old young and middle-aged are all over these hills and it reminds me of Israel and Israel's national trail and the way that we love our country and uh, in both cases our countries are are beautiful but not the most beautiful Mm. but they're ours and uh, uh, I've got some more walking to do here Sure. Well, Ambassador, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. We've been speaking to Ambassador Akiva Tor for Touch Basins Hall. Thank you once again for your time today. Please invite me again. I am pianist William Yoon. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time for Morning Edition Preview, our closing segment where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is here with us again. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you, Jang. Okay, so what's our first story about? Well, this is quite a fitting article, as it has been snowing today. EO News article in the national section of the Korea Times explains that after nearly three years, the ice skating rink at Seoul Plaza will be back. 
Yes, this is a very popular attraction for mm-hmm. couples and families during the Christmas uh, period, uh, and finally is returning after the pandemic, of course. Uh, so I presume that the rink will be opening soon as we're getting close to the holidays. From December 21st, in fact, so just in time for Christmas. Mm. It will run all the way until February 12th. The rink will be open from 10am to 9.30pm on weekdays and from 10am to 11pm on weekends and national holidays. The article mentions that the rink's fee hasn't gone up since its establishment in 2004. It's still 1,001. That's around 77 cents. That fee includes helmets and knee pads, but if you want to use a locker, you have to pay an extra 1,001. Yes, as we said, it's a very popular attraction. So in the wake of the Itaewon crowd crush back in October, organisers of events have been taking extra precautions to prevent terrible incidents uh, like that from happening again. Mm, right. So is the city putting any measures in place uh, in case of large crowds here as well? It is. The number of safety workers on the site will be doubled and medical workers will be deployed to ensure public safety. The organisers will also follow government COVID-19 measures, and it's worth noting that if fine dust levels surpass a certain point, the rink will be closed to protect public health. Like today, I suspect. Yes. yes. The city will announce any closure on its website, soulskate.co.kr. That is also where you can buy tickets to skate on the rink. Yes, because it's the first time in three years that this uh, rink is opening. I expect it to be very popular and very busy this year right. as well. Let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Next is Huang Donghi's article in the Life and Style section of the Korea Herald. Apparently, four world classic books will be translated into Korean for the first time ever. They have not been translated into Korean before, as it is difficult to translate them, or there was a lack of commercial interest at the time. Hmm. So why are they being translated now? Well, that's because they've been selected for the 2022 translation of World Classics. This is a project by the Desan Foundation that supports the translation of foreign literary works into Korean. The foundation's aim is to expand the exchange of world literature and enrich Korean literature. 179 works have been published in Korean so far since 1999. OK, so tell us about this year's picks then. They are Mary Barton, A Tale of Manchester Life by Elizabeth Gaskell, Franz Werfel's The 40 Days of Musa Dag, Reads in the Wind by Grazia Deletta and The Millennial Rapture by Kenji Nakagami. Around $30,000 will be provided for the translations, with each translator receiving between five dollars and $10,000. Yes, I'm sure it will be a challenge translating these books, but I'm sure mm. uh, Korean people will be able to appreciate and enjoy these classics thanks to them. OK, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show today as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.